Volume 3, Part 5 of Herodotus's Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason Tierney. Histories, Volume 3 by Herodotus of Halicarnassus. Translated by E. D. Godley. Part 5. Here ends what I have said of the fleet. When his army had been numbered and marshaled, Xerxes desired to ride through and view it. Then he did this. As he rode in a chariot past the men of each nation, he questioned them while his scribes rode it all down, until he had gone from one end to the other of the cavalry and infantry. After he had done this, the ships were drawn down and launched into the sea. Xerxes alighted from his chariot into a Sidonian ship, and sat under a golden canopy while he was carried past the prows of the ships, questioning the men in the same way as the army, and having the answers written down. The captains put out and anchored in line four hundred feet from the shore, with their prows turned landward and the marines armed for war. Xerxes viewed them by passing between the prows and the land. After he passed by all his fleet and disembarked from the ship, he sent for Demaratus, son of Ariston, who was on the expedition with him against Hellas. He summoned him and said, Demaratus, it is now my pleasure to ask you what I wish to know. You are a Greek, and, as I am told both by you and by other Greeks whom I have talked to, a man from neither the least nor the weakest of Greek cities. So tell me, will the Greeks offer battle and oppose me? I think that even if all the Greeks and all the men of the western lands were assembled together, they are not powerful enough to withstand my attack, unless they are united. Still, I want to hear from you what you say of them. To this question Demaratus answered, O king, should I speak the truth or try to please you? Xerxes bade him speak the truth, and said that it would be no more unpleasant for him than before. Demaratus heard this, and said, O king, since you bid me by all means to speak the whole truth, and to say what you will not later prove to be false. In Hellas, poverty is always endemic, but courage is acquired as the fruit of wisdom and strong law. By use of this courage, Hellas defends herself from poverty and tyranny. Now I praise all the Greeks who dwell in those Dorian lands, yet I am not going to speak these words about all of them, but only about the Lacedaemonians. First, they will never accept conditions from you that bring slavery upon Hellas. And second, they will meet you in battle, even if all the other Greeks are on your side. Do not ask me how many these men are who can do this. They will fight with you whether they have an army of a thousand men, or more than that, or less. When he heard this, Xerxes smiled and said, What a strange thing to say, Demaratus, that a thousand men would fight with so great an army. Come now, tell me this. You say that you were king of these men. Are you willing right now to fight with ten men? Yet if your state is entirely as you define it, you, as their king, should by right encounter twice as many according to your laws. If each of them is a match for ten men of my army, then it is plain to me that you must be a match for twenty. In this way you would prove that what you say is true. But if you Greeks who so exalt yourselves are just like you and the others who come to speak with me, and are also the same size, then beware lest the words you have spoken be only idle boasting. 
let us look at it with all reasonableness. How could a thousand, or ten thousand, or even fifty thousand men, if they are all equally free and not under the rule of one man, withstand so great an army as mine? If you Greeks are five thousand, we still would be more than a thousand to one. If they were under the rule of one man, according to our custom, they might, out of fear of him, become better than they naturally are, and under compulsion of the lash they might go against greater numbers of inferior men. But if they are allowed to go free, they would do neither. I myself think that even if they were equal in numbers, it would be hard for the Greeks to fight just against the Persians. What you are talking about is found among us alone, and even then it is not common but rare. There are some among my Persian spearmen who will gladly fight with three Greeks at once. You have no knowledge of this and are spouting a lot of nonsense. To this Demaratus answered, O king, I knew from the first that the truth would be unwelcome to you. But since you compelled me to speak as truly as I could, I have told you how it stands with the Spartans. You yourself best know what love I bear them. They have robbed me of my office and the privileges of my house, and made me a cityless exile. Your father received me and gave me a house and the means to live on. It is not reasonable for a sensible man to reject goodwill when it appears. Rather, he will hold it in great affection. I myself do not promise that I can fight with ten men or with two, and I would not even willingly fight with one. Yet if it were necessary, or if some great contest spurred me, I would most gladly fight with one of those men who claim to be each a match for three Greeks. So is it with the Lacedaemonians. Fighting singly they are as brave as any man living, and together they are the best warriors on earth. They are free, yet not wholly free. Law is their master, whom they fear much more than your men fear you. They do whatever it bids, and its bidding is always the same, that they must never flee from the battle before any multitude of men, but must abide at their post, and there conquer or die. If I seem to you to speak foolishness when I say this, then let me hereafter hold my peace. It is under constraint that I have now spoken, but may your wish be fulfilled, king. Thus Demaratus answered, Xerxes made a joke of the matter and showed no anger, but sent him away kindly. After he had conversed with Demaratus, and appointed Moscomes, son of Megadostes, governor of this Doriscus, deposing the governor Darius had appointed, Xerxes marched his army through Thrace towards Hellas. Xerxes left behind this Moscomes, who so conducted himself that to him alone Xerxes always sent gifts, as being the most valiant of all the governors that he or Darius appointed. He sent these gifts every year, and so did Artaxerxes, son of Xerxes, to Moscomus's descendants. Before this march, governors had been appointed everywhere in Thrace and on the Hellespont. All of these in Thrace and the Hellespont, except the governor of Doriscus, were after this expedition captured by the Greeks. But no one could ever drive out Moscomes and Doriscus, though many tried. For this reason, gifts are sent by the successive kings of Persia. The only one of those who were driven out by the Greeks, whom King Xerxes considered a valiant man, was Bogis, from whom they took Aeon. He never ceased praising this man, and gave very great honor to his sons who were left alive in Persia. Indeed, Bogis proved himself worthy of all praise. When he was besieged by the Athenians under Cimon, son of Miltiades, 
he could have departed under treaty from Aeon and returned to Asia. But he refused, lest the king think that he had saved his life out of cowardice. Instead, he resisted to the last. When there was no food left within his walls, he piled up a great pyre, and slew his children and wife, and concubines and servants, and cast them into the fire. After that, he took all the gold and silver from the city, and scattered it from the walls into the strymon. After he had done this, he cast himself into the fire. Thus he is justly praised by the Persians to this day. From Doriscus, Xerxes went on his way towards Hellas, compelling all that he met to go with his army. As I have shown earlier, all the country as far as Thessaly had been enslaved and was tributary to the king, by the conquests of Megabazus and Mardonius after him. On his road from Doriscus, he first passed the Samothracian fortresses. Of these, the city built farthest to the west is called Mesambria. Next to it is the Thacian city of Strym. Between them runs the river Lysus, which now could not furnish water enough for Xerxes's army, but was exhausted. All this region was once called Galaic, but it is now called Briantic. However, by rights it also belongs to the Caconians. After he had crossed the dried-up bed of the river Lysus, he passed by the Greek cities of Maronea, Dikaia, and Abdera. He passed by these, and along certain well-known lakes near them. The Ismarid lake that lies between Maronea and Strym, and near Dikaia the Bistonian lake, into which the rivers Travus and Compsantus discharge. Near Abdera, Xerxes passed no well-known lake, but crossed the river Nestus, where it flows into the sea. From these regions he passed by the cities of the mainland, one of which has near it a lake of about thirty stadia in circuit, full of fish and very salty. This was drained dry by watering the beasts of burden alone. This city is called Pistirus. Xerxes marched past these Greek cities of the coast, keeping them on his left. Thracian tribes through whose lands he journeyed were the Paiti, Cacones, Bistones, Sapei, Dersei, Edoni, and Satri. Of these, the ones who dwelt by the sea followed his army on shipboard. The ones living inland, whose names I have recorded, were forced to join with his land army, all of them except the Satri. The Satri, as far as we know, have never yet been subject to any man. They alone of the Thracians have continued living in freedom to this day. They dwell on high mountains covered with forests of all kinds and snow, and they are excellent warriors. It is they who possess the place of divination sacred to Dionysus. This place is in their highest mountains. The Bessi, a clan of the Satri, are the prophets of the shrine. There is a priestess who utters the oracle, as at Delphi. It is no more complicated here than there. After passing through the aforementioned land, Xerxes next passed the fortresses of the Pierians, one called Phagres and the other Pergamos. By going this way, he marched right under their walls, keeping on his right the great and high Pangean range, where the Pierians and Adamanti and especially the Satri have gold and silver mines. Marching past the Paeonians, Doberes, and Paeopli, who dwell beyond and northward of the Pangean mountains, he kept going westwards until he came to the river Strymon and the city of Aeon. Its governor was that Boges, then still alive, whom I mentioned just before this. All this region about the Pangean range is called Phyllis, 
It stretches westward to the river Angites, which issues into the Strymon, and southwards to the Strymon itself. At this river, the Magi sought good omens by sacrificing white horses. After using these enchantments, and many others besides on the river, they passed over it at the nine ways in Adonian country, by the bridges which they found thrown across the Strymon. When they learned that nine ways was the name of the place, they buried alive that number of boys and maidens, children of the local people. To bury people alive is a Persian custom. I have learned by inquiry that when Xerxes's wife, a mistress, reached old age, she buried twice seven sons of notable Persians as an offering on her own behalf to the fabled god beneath the earth. Journeying from the Strymon, the army passed by Argolus, a Greek town standing on a stretch of coast further westwards. The territory of this town, and that which lies inland of it, are called Bisaltia. From there, keeping on his left hand the Gulf of Poseidon, Xerxes traversed the plain of Celius, as they call it, passing by the Greek town of Stagirus, and came to Acanthus. He took along with him all these tribes and those that dwelt about the Pangean range, just as he did those previously mentioned, the men of the coast serving in his fleet and the inland men in his land army. The entire road along which King Xerxes led his army, the Thracians neither break up nor sow, but they hold it in great reverence to this day. When Xerxes came to Acanthus, he declared the Acanthians his guests and friends, and gave them Median clothing, praising them for the zeal with which he saw them furthering his campaign, and for what he heard of the digging of the canal. While Xerxes was at Acanthus, it happened that Artaches, overseer of the digging of the canal, died of an illness. He was high in Xerxes' favor, an Achaemenid by lineage, and the tallest man in Persia, lacking four finger-breadths of five royal cubits in stature, and his voice was the loudest on earth. For this reason Xerxes mourned him greatly, and gave him a funeral and burial of great pomp, and the whole army poured libations on his tomb. The Acanthians hold Artaches a hero, and sacrifice to him, calling upon his name. This they do at the command of an oracle. King Xerxes, then, mourned for the death of Artaches. But the Greeks who received Xerxes' army and entertained the king himself were brought to such a degree of misery that they were driven from house and home. Witness the case of the Thasians, who received and feasted Xerxes' army on behalf of their towns on the mainland. Antipatris, son of Orgius, as notable a man as any of his townsmen, chosen by them for this task, rendered them an account of four hundred silver talents expended on the dinner. Similar accounts were returned by the officers in the other towns. Now the dinner, about which a great deal of fuss had been made, and for the preparation of which orders had been given long ago, proceeded as I will tell. As soon as the townsmen had word from the herald's proclamation, they divided corn among themselves in their cities, and all of them for many months ground it to wheat and barley meal. Moreover, they fed the finest beasts that money could buy, and kept landfowl and waterfowl in cages and ponds, for the entertaining of the army. They also made gold and silver cups, and bowls, and all manner of service for the table. These things were provided for the king himself, and those that ate with him. For the rest of the army they provided only food, at the coming of the army, there was always a tent ready for Xerxes to take his rest in. 
while the men camped out in the open air. When the hour came for dinner, the real trouble for the hosts began. When they had eaten their fill and passed the night there, the army tore down the tent on the next day and marched off with all the movables, leaving nothing but carrying all with them. It was then that a very apt saying was uttered by one Megacreon of Abdera. He advised his townsmen, men and women alike, to gather at their temples, and there in all humility to entreat the gods to defend them in the future from half of every threatened ill. They should also, he said, thank the gods heartily for their previous show of favor, for it was Xerxes's custom to take a meal only once a day. Otherwise they would have been commanded to furnish a breakfast similar to the dinner. The people of Abdera would then have had no choice but to flee before Xerxes's coming, or to perish most miserably if they awaited him. So the townsmen, oppressed as they were, nevertheless did as they were commanded. Upon leaving Acanthus, Xerxes sent his ships on their course away from him, giving orders to his generals that the fleet should await him at Therma, the town on the Thermaic Gulf, which gives the gulf its name, for this, he learned, was his shortest way. The order of the army's march, from Doriscus to Acanthus, had been such as I will show. Dividing his entire land army into three parts, Xerxes appointed one of them to march beside his fleet along the coast. Mardonius and Masistes were the generals of this segment, while another third of the army marched, as appointed, further inland under Tritontychemes and Gerges. The third part, with which Xerxes himself went, marched between the two, and its generals were Smerdomenes and Megabyzus. Now when the fleet had left Xerxes, it sailed through the Athos Canal, which reached to the gulf in which are located the towns of Asa, Pilarus, Singus, and Sarte. The fleet took on board troops from all these cities, and then headed for the Thermaic Gulf. Then rounding Ampolus, the headland of Torone, it passed the Greek towns of Torone, Galepsus, Sirmile, Mechaberna, and Olynthus, all of which gave them ships and men. This country is called Scythonia. The fleet held a straight course from the headland of Ampolus to the Canistrian headland, where Palene runs farthest out to sea, and received ships and men from the towns of what is now Palene, but was formerly called Phlegra, namely Potidaia, Aphitis, Neapolis, Aige, Therambus, Scione, Mende, and Sane. Sailing along this coast, they made for the appointed place, taking troops from the towns adjacent to Palene and near the Thermaic Gulf, of which the names are Lipaxus, Combria, Isa, Gigonus, Kamsa, Smila, Aenea. The territory of these cities is called Crassai to this day. From Aenea, the last named in my list of the towns, the course of the fleet lay from the Thermaic Gulf itself and the Mygdonian territory until its voyage ended at Therma, the place appointed, and the towns of Sindus and Calestra, where it came to the river Axius. This is the boundary between the Mygdonian and the Botiaean territory, in which are located the towns of Ichnai and Pella on the narrow strip of coast. So the fleet lay there off the river Axius, and the city of Therma, and the towns between them, awaiting the king. But Xerxes and his land army marched from Acanthus by the straightest inland course, making for Therma. Their way lay through the Paeonian and the Crestonian country to the river Kydoris, which, rising in the Crestonian land, 
flows through the Mygdonian country and issues by the marshes of the Axios. As Xerxes marched by this route, lions attacked the camels which carried his provisions. Nightly they would come down out of their lairs and made havoc of the camels alone, seizing nothing else, man or beast of burden. I wonder what prevented the lions from touching anything but the camels, creatures which they had not seen and had no knowledge of until then. In these parts there are many lions and wild oxen, whose horns are those very long ones which are brought into Hellas. The boundary of the lion's country is the river Nestus, which flows through Abdera, and the river Achelous, which flows through Acarnania. Neither to the east of the Nestus, anywhere in the nearer part of Europe, nor to the west of the Achelous, in the rest of the mainland, is any lion to be seen, but they are found in the country between those rivers. When he had arrived at Therma, Xerxes quartered his army there. Its encampment by the sea covered all the space from Therma and the Mygdonian country to the rivers Lydias and Haleakmon, which unite their waters in one stream, and so make the border between the Botiaean and the Macedonian territory. In this place the foreigners lay encamped. Of the rivers just mentioned, the Kaidoris, which flows from the Crestonian country, was the only one which could not suffice for the army's drinking, but was completely drained by it. End of Volume 3, Part 5 Recording by Jason Tierney